0: Welcome to Cato Audio for July 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Tom Bell evaluates our bloated copyright system. William Easterly challenges the tyranny of experts. Kevin Gates discusses regulatory bullying. Leshik Bosarowicz receives the Milton Friedman Prize. And Roger Pilon talks about the broad contributions of Bruno Leone. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Four years ago in July 2010, the uh, President Obama signed into law the Dodd-Frank Financial Reform Act, which uh, was one of the most ambitious reforms of the financial sector following the financial crisis and recession of 2008 through, through 2009 and 10. I'm joined to talk about that and sort of uh, what's as these regulations roll out, what we should expect in the coming months and years. Mark Calabria is Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute, and Louise Bennett is Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Welcome.
1: Thank you. you. So
0: just to get started here, um, there's a whole lot that was mandated by the Dodd-Frank Act that is just now really Starting to be written in in actual regulatory form,
1: it really is a a tremendous undertaking. Uh, Some estimates are that the the act itself will require something like four hundred rulemakings. They are about halfway through that, uh, and even the halfway includes a number that have been proposed. Of course, some of these are fairly small, and some of these are very big rulemakings. Uh, Certainly, as someone who who has ran a regulatory agency as well as been on the Hill, many of the the deadlines were. You know, unrealistic to begin with, certainly if you wanted them to be deliberative. But, uh, you know, we are still seeing much of Dodd-Frank written. And, of course, that also keeps into consideration there are a number of things uh, that were happening outside of Dodd-Frank, such as the Basel Capital Standards were being evolved while Dodd-Frank was being written. Louise?
2: And one of the interesting things about these rulemakings is if you if you look at what's coming out of the regulatory agencies, they're not giving a lot of certainty to participants in the in in the private sector. So if you're a bank, if you're a financial services company, a lot of these rulemakings, even even once they're passed, even in numbers that Mark mentioned before that have have been finalized, it's very difficult to know as a as a private institution what the impact is going to be because the regulatory have re- retained a lot of discretion, even within the rulemakings, to decide as they go along.
0: Now, what, was that part of the, uh, the intent of the law, that is, we want to you know, signal that we're doing a lot of good things for the financial sector, but we're going to actually leave it to regulators to deal with what the nitty gritty is.
1: You know, there's a number of reasons for this. And again, I say this as someone who's spent a number of years in the Senate Banking Committee, so has been there. Um, there's a lot of pressure in Congress to kind of, you know, one, if you can't get agreement on something, the way you kind of get agreement is you paper over it and you kick it to the regulator. So that way, you know, everybody can kind of walk away pretending that their preferred interpretation was what was there. Um, Some will make an argument, which certainly has some merit, that the staff and members of Congress are not themselves capable of actually making these decisions, and so they're kicked, quote-unquote, to the experts, Um, and that's some of the arguments, and of course – You know, there's also a sense of giving the regulators flexibility. And so, you know, for instance, former Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner has really emphasized this on how much, you know, the regulators need to have a free hand and not have this too much determined ahead of time. And so it does reflect a philosophy of government that really empowers – um, what is believed to be, you know, in regulators somewhat insulated from the political process because financial regulation is also characterized very high percentage of independent regulators compared to other uh, regulatory areas of government. And you know, it's assembly assumed that if we get the right people in there or the smart people in there with their PhDs and law degrees that um, they'll make the right decisions and, you know, we should just delegate that to them.
2: And it's interesting because, of course, one or two of the regulatory bodies that have been created by Dodd Frank um, are, are sort of unpre- give the, give these new regulatory agencies unprecedented power and complete absence of oversight by Congress. So I think the one we've seen the most um, news on is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is really all on a frolic of its own. It's impossible to remove the head except for very, very, very small number of infractions. Let's, and-
0: let's walk through some of the provisions that created the CFPB and what how it, what is it is bound by with respect to its authority. So... Uh, who can remove the head of the CFPB? The, the,
1: the president, but it's so various statutes have have you know lay out different guidelines for what can be removed. And so as we know, like if you're a cabinet member, you essentially can be fired on the spot. Um, but the head of the CFPB, the president can only really fire them for kind of lack of doing their job. So of course, many would interpret that as if you're not being aggressive enough. Uh, and of course, you know if you're convicted of frauds or other things. But it's a very high bar, even actually for financial regulators. Uh, it's all arguably easier to remove the, you know, the head of the office in control of the currency, which regulates national banks, than it is to remove the CFPB.
0: Now, most uh, regulatory agencies receive their funding from Congress; this they is, are accountable to Congress. What about the CFPB? This
1: is another, you know, to me, very dangerous precedent. Um, so, the CFPB is essentially funded by the Federal Reserve. And so what happens, of course, is that the Federal Reserve buys various securities like treasuries and agencies. They get income from that. We'll set aside the ridiculousness of uh, the Treasury paying the Fed to give money back to the Treasury. But the, there's a cut taken off the top of that uh, that is given to fund the CFPB. So it's outside of the appropriations process. Uh, now, Congress has the authority to to put money in on top of that. But this is very unusual Um, Almost all the bank regulators, the financial regulators, even when they are assessed on the industry, such as the Securities and Exchange Commission, is funded by an assessment on new uh, stock issuance, but it's all determined by Congress. Congress sets us through the appropriations process. And so this was explicitly set up to try to remove congressional oversight. Uh, And it really was a sense of let's try to bind future Congresses, let's quote-unquote insulate this agency. It's also highly unusual in that most quote unquote, independent agencies like the Federal Reserve or like the Consumer Product Safety Commission on which this was modeled are boards. And they tend to be bipartisan boards. Mm -hmm. Um, They tend to be try to to be as nonpolitical. And of course, that forces the debate out in the open. Uh, You know, one thing, it it reduces the variance of outcomes because you've got to have a number of people come to agreement. And so this was very much structured to try to have one individual who could jam through a number of things in a short amount of time with very little constraint.
0: Now, uh, with limited congressional oversight, limited presidential oversight, uh, what is the mandate of this agency?
1: So the mandate is is eventually is essentially seen to be, you know, quote unquote, protecting the consumer, but you know, there's a lot buried in that. Of course, we all like consumers. I'm a consumer. I'd like to be protected, but you know, it's it goes a little bit deeper than that. So we have seen repeatedly uh, consumer protection, Take the take the uh, approach of trying to essentially subsidize, cross subsidize within the financial services industry. You know, I kind of look at it as having the, the the prudent subsidize the imprudent.
2: And something else is that it, I think one of the big problems and its attention throughout the act, it's not just the, the CFPB, but that's where it's most most vivid, is that there's this. Uh, on one hand, we're saying, well, we're going to subsidize or or, or we're we're going to protect consumers from themselves. On the other hand, we want to give sort of endless credit to consumers, but there's a tension there because protecting people from risk means not allowing them to take on risk. And so, you see, for example, the CFPB has been going after payday lenders and you know, and 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 other credit agencies that operate in the low end of the market. And so, um, but then that means, of course, this is restricting credit for consumers, uh, and it's not clear currently how the uh, CFPB intends to play that out. In fact, it seems like they may be forcing uh, commercial banks to take on more of these risky consumers, which of course has never ended particularly well in the past. But um, it's a little early to know, but the mandate seems to be that they are going after uh, people that are operating or companies that are operating outside of the traditional banking sector.
1: And that's a really important uh, emphasis. You know, the CFPP was sold as something that, you know, had to rein in Wall Street and, you know, protect consumers. And of course, Wall Street's not covered by the CFPB; it remains at the SEC. And the biggest change that the CFPB has is not as much consolidating the consumer protection regulation of banks, but it is that it's an expansion uh, of examination authority over non-banks. Now, everybody payday across the board was subject to unfair deceptive practices by the Federal Trade Commission. You know, there were no unregulated sectors for the financial system pre-crisis. That is one of the worst misses out there. Um, But the CFPB, for the first time, has a federal examination process for all these. And, of course, to me, it says a lot about Dodd-Frank, for instance, that no exaggeration, there is literally more discussion of payday lending in Dodd-Frank than there is of Fannie Mae. And it really tells you the perception of Dodd-Frank and its approach to the crisis, which is let's take advantage of a crisis to do a bunch of things we want to do otherwise and not actually fix the things that drove the crisis.
0: All right. So we've vested a great deal of power now in the CFPB, uh, but there are many, many provisions of the Dodd-Frank Reform Act. What What are some others that people should be thinking about in the coming years?
2: Well, I think one of the big um, concerns, and certainly something we focused a lot of time and attention on, again to Mark's point about the non-bank financial sector, is this: is the powers that are that have been uh, afforded this new uh, body that operates inside the treasury, in fact, and it's called the Financial Stability Oversight Council. And what that council is tasked with doing is determining where there are risks in the financial sector that need to be monitored or given sort of extra regulatory attention. Um, this is a problem because what we've seen so far is this as this is a political body. First of all, it's not an independent regulatory agency. It operates inside the Treasury. It's staffed entirely by whomever happens to be in power at that time, staff. And and so um, it's it a, and it's ties and it's given these broad powers to determine which non-bank companies in operating. So it could be an insurance company, a hedge fund is it poses some kind of systemic risk. Um, and so far, the, what the, what this uh, body has released has been somewhat underwhelming. It seems like they are not that on top of what, um, for example, insurance companies and, and financial asset firms actually do. Um, so, for example, recently they released a report or the Office of Financial Research, which is a, a, a body uh, attached to them, released a report on um, on asset managers, which was widely pillared, not just by the industry, but even by independent observers. Um, so it's not clear that these companies actually do pose any systemic risk, but it's clear that they wish to increase regulatory oversight of all sorts of, of elements of the economy.
1: You know, it's worth expounding upon that, you know, one of the theories of Dodd-Frank, and, you know, there's a lot of, Dodd-Frank deserves a fair amount of criticism, um, but you really have to look at the underlying narrative and the theory that, that informs a lot of it. And one of these theories is that, the financial crisis was not a problem of banks. It was a problem of non-banks and that you had what would have been old-style bank runs in the non-bank market, whether it was the overnight repo market, whether it was the insurance market. And so part of the theory of Dodd-Frank is that the financial, crisis, financial crises will be avoided in the future if we just regulate the rest of the financial system like we regulate banks. And, of course, my quip is that um, you know, the short line of Dodd-Frank is that if we simply regulated everybody as well as we regulated Citibank last time, everything will be okay. All right. Uh, One other element that I want to talk about uh, is this idea
0: of how derivatives get regulated uh, within uh, Dodd-Frank. People blame speculation, evil speculators for a whole lot of uh, malfeasance within the financial market. But first of all, derivatives perform social functions. Like They are sometimes a canary in a coal mine for a a lot of uh, uh, financial problems that may emerge. Pretty much, the housing market began to be shorted once we got accurate information about uh, mm-hmm. about the about these loans. So, how does the federal government now propose that we regulate uh, derivatives?
2: Well, that's interesting because there is such a there's a big split. So, uh, something you need to to note is that. Um, different types of derivatives are regulated by different agencies. So certain types of derivatives are um, are regulated by the CFTC and certain types are, are, are regulated by the SEC. Security-based derivatives tend to be regulated by the SEC. So one of and, – and they've taken two entirely different approaches – to regulating these these products, so um, under Gary Gensler, the CFTC was quite aggressive. They have uh, b- sort of claimed a lot of extraterritorial jurisdiction for um, for regulating traditional swaps markets. So that's kind of markets that uh, relate to kind of agricultural products and, and and you know traditional products as opposed to financial products, um, and. Uh, so and, and and there was a lot of pushback about that obviously uh, these products are, are quite mobile so if you do something within your borders that the rest of the market doesn't like it just the activity just moves across o- o- border um, and, you know, I, I think one of the problems is, is, is derivatives were somewhat unfairly criticized during the crisis because, as you said, uh, your, your analogy of the canary in the coal mine is, is a very good one. They, derivatives just get their reference point from the underlying product, so if the underlying product is a good product, there's no problem with the derivative. But if the underlying product is a subprime mortgage that's packaged up, uh, you know, and, and it, can, it can magnify the problem, but it isn't the cause of the problem.
0: And derivatives have two sides, right? right? You have a winner and a loser, Right, exactly.
2: So it's, 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 it's kind of a zero-sum yeah, game. It, it, in, it is absolutely a, sense, yeah.
1: a zero-sum game. The, the, the losses are netted, but, you know, it's also worth remembering, you know, any one derivative instrument has at least two risks. That's the, in, rate, uh, the risk of the underlying instrument, but there's also the counterparty risk. I mean, you mm. know, it might be heads I win, tails you lose, but you can't pay me because you've gone bankrupt. And so a lot of the focus that came out of came out of AIG was a sense of, well, they owed everybody money like Goldman and Society General, but they couldn't pay. And so the approach of Dodd-Frank, you know, I I call this kind of the Fannie Mae style approach to derivatives, which is, well, if we just centralize all the risk in the derivatives market and place the government behind it, then it'll be okay. And that's essentially what we've done. We've tried to mandate clearing. uh, And for the first time ever, Dodd-Frank allows clearing houses to have access to the Federal Reserve discount window. So we've essentially placed the federal government behind clearing houses. We've been very fortunate in the United States, we've never had a clearing house fail, but we could.
0: So, uh, if I understand correctly, the uh, impetus here is that we want better information about derivatives of various products. Is that that's what's driving the desire? Right? This well, is that's, part of it.
2: That is driving it. Uh, but the problem is that if you look at these really esoteric products, you know, some of the the, the problematic Exotics. products, exo- the exotic, Mistake. they're too esoteric and exotic to be traded on a tr- on an exchange. Exchanges tend to trade very standardized or- orange products. Orange juice. Right, and so and so and the, and so those products are still traded on a bilateral basis. So you really haven't eliminated the concern about these esoteric products, but you also have centralized risk in in, in an agent. And it's also
1: worth pointing out a lot of the way Dodd Frank was sold and the centralizing of derivatives was the sort of assertion that if you just centralize the risk, it kind of went poof, disappeared. You know, it was gone Mm -hmm. now. Uh, And of course, as we know, mutualizing risk does not eliminate it. Uh, And mutualizing risk often results in all sorts of moral hazard and adverse election problems that become very serious. So again, we were sold, in my opinion, you know, a sort of false assumption that we would sort of have this risk go away. You know, we very much run the risk that you know clearing houses which serve very important roles in our financial system could end up being just as highly leveraged if not more leveraged than the banks that would have held the risk otherwise and why is that because of course the more it's margining requirements behind the derivatives. And again, we've seen this. Again, I use the example of Fannie Mae where we centralized all of this mortgage credit risk into two entities, Fannie and Freddie, and they ended up being so much more highly leveraged than the banks themselves. We would have had less of a crisis if that mortgage risk stayed with the banks, still would have had problems, of course. And so by pushing derivatives to be centrally cleared, you're going to have a small number of entities clearing houses. There aren't tons of them. There are only a small number of them. You're going to see them push to take, you know, greater and greater risk in terms of margining requirements because that's what competitive pressures do to monopolies. So you end up with the possibility that you end up spreading systemic risk through the clearinghouse because the clearinghouse has become insolvent because of the losses in the counterparty risk, which, of course, is why Dodd-Frank places the Federal Reserve behind the clearinghouses. It really is this theory of expanding the safety net of the federal government to all sorts of actors in the financial system, and of course that's where they are, then the argument comes in that, well, this is why you need regulation to offset the moral hazard, Uh, but of course, you know, if the last hundred years of financial regulation has taught us anything, is that the moral hazard incentives in the private sector, you know, far outweigh, and are far more powerful than anything the regulators are ever going to do.
0: So... We're in a situation where we've adopted a huge financial reform of a system that was broadly poorly regulated. <laughs> we've now made and, it and more poorly and, regulated. And we've, and we've extended it. So if, if we had to adopt two or three reforms to get us to a more rational system, in a few minutes, what would they be?
1: You know, I think the most important thing we could have done is bring market discipline back into the yeah. system by putting creditors at risk. And, and again, this is a 100% counter to the theory of Dodd-Frank. But but market discipline, you know, to me is far more powerful than any regulatory discipline. And obviously, if I lend you a billion dollars, I have far stronger incentives to pay attention to what you do than if I'm a regulator who never loses his job, depending on a, regardless how poorly you do.
2: I think that's 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 the key thing and I there's this dirty word in Washington DC which is incentives uh, people are either evil. You know, if you're if you're a Wall Street banker, you're evil if you do certain things. But everybody ignores the system under which we we operate, and so there's a there's a lot of things that that, that need to be addressed. I agree with Mark. You need to bring back market discipline. The people that take the risk need to take the uh, the upside and the downside. But if you overregulate, if you tell banks exactly what the capital structure has to look like, what activities they're allowed to do, what things they're not allowed to do, then when they fail. It's up to you to bail them out, and, they, and there's a certain moral, you know, requirement that you do that because you've been the person, you being, of course, the federal government that has that has that has conducted these, you know, these activities. And of
0: course, it would be amiss if I did not uh, mention our president, John Allison, wants to get rid of federal deposit insurance, which
2: we should
1: do because that is a massive source of. of, of you know, moral hazard market discipline. So in addition to what we just talked about bringing market discipline back, you know, I think we also need to be uh, honest about whether we're going to use finance or not as a, as a way of redistributing wealth. Yes. I would prefer not, but part of the problem is, of course, we use it to redistribute wealth. And of course, if you're going to do that, put it on budget, do it honestly, and don't hide it through the cost of credit. Uh, and I think we should also note that, uh, you know, we're, we here at Cato are celebrating, <laughs> I don't know if celebrating is the right word, we're uh, honoring the, the sort of uh, four years of Dodd-Frank by having a conference in July 16th and 17th that will be online and certainly encourage people to attend as well.
0: All right, Mark Calabria, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute, and Louise Bennett, Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies. Again, we'll have a conference uh, mid-July here. and You can find more of the writings of these two at our website, cato.org. Leszek Balsarowicz has been widely credited with the economic transformation of Poland. He liberalized the prices of most consumer goods and initiated sound fiscal and monetary measures designed to balance the budget and end hyperinflation. A former member of the Polish United Workers' Party, Balsarowicz became Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister in 1989 under Eastern Europe's first non-communist government since the end of World War II. For leading the way for post-communist countries transitioning to free markets, Bolsarovic received the 2014 Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty. This is a portion of his remarks.
3: The awarded Milton Friedman Prize is one of the greatest honors. As John has rightly remarked, it is a Nobel Prize for freedom. As we all know, Milton Friedman was a great scholar, and a great communicator in the service of what works best in society, individual liberty, free markets, and the rule of law. Therefore, I am very, very grateful to the jury for awarding me this prize. However, let me now turn to my native Poland. Until spring 1989, I did not expect that Soviet Union would dissolve and Poland would be free. I did not have such a dream. It was beyond my dreams, as it was beyond the dreams of most of Poles. But I had a hobby. I was very much interested in market reforms. And uh, in the late 70s, I created an informal group of the younger economists to work on this topic, and we did it for more than 10 years. After the elections of 4th July 1989, it became clear that Poland can move ahead with radical transformation, and I was asked to take the responsibility for the economic reforms. I accepted it because I felt that by chance, I did some homework, and I had a team. As one can see, sometimes it pays to have useless hobbies. The situation in Poland in late 89, as it was mentioned, was dramatic. Inflation was equal to 30-40% a month, combined with massive shortages. We are a bankrupt country vis-à-vis the West, and outputs was falling. But Poland was free. And we could do what was impossible from geopolitical point of view before. We could move to free markets and to the rule of law. There were basically two ways of doing this. Rapidly and on a broad front, or slowly and step by step. I felt that the first option was very risky because we were on uncharted waters. But the second option was completely hopeless. (laughs) So a very risky option is always better than a hopeless option. (laughs) And this is what gave me strength to pursue the reforms. It was not a blind faith. It was based on what I believed was a rational comparison of options. I was also in charge of policy economic policies between 1997 and the year 2000, and then we accelerated privatization and the deregulation of the economy. By the way, the most important economic reforms are at the same time political reforms because they've reduced the scope of politicized or bureaucratic interventions. Finally, I had the pleasure of chairing Poland Central Bank during 2001 and 2007, when in- inflation was reduced from 10% to 2%. You don't want to reduce it further. <laughs> <clears throat> I think there are many lessons about economic reforms, but let me mention two. First, be ready to move fast when a window of opportunity appears. To move fast in the right direction. One has to be ready for that. And second, work hard on the public opinion to stop the spiral of state intervention. It is better to stop it by that than by the crisis which arises when this sort of policies are not stopped. And in both respects, I believe the role of Cato and other free market think tanks is enormous. It is for protection, if it is successful, against crisis and stagnation.
0: The Italian law scholar Bruno Leone was a champion of law over legislation. In his classic Freedom and the Law, he presented the case for organic legal systems that adjust to human behavior and against legal systems that attempt to adjust human behavior to fit the needs and desires of the politically powerful. In marking Leone's 101st birthday, Cato Vice President Roger Pollan discussed his contributions.
4: We're here to mark the 101st uh, birthday of the late Bruno Leone, and to reflect on his work, uh, which was best represented perhaps in the series of lectures he gave in 1958 and were later collected in his seminal collection, Freedom and the Law. Uh, Leone was a polyglot, uh, comfortable working in at least four languages, and a polymath, a legal philosopher whose thought ranged from law and political science to economics, philosophy, history, and beyond. But because it was wide-ranging, addressing different political and legal systems, both in time and in several modern countries, it was largely abstract and short on applications, making it often difficult to know precisely what the implications might be for any particular country or system today. Nevertheless, the main outlines of Leone's argument are clear enough. In the few minutes I have, I'll sketch them, place them in the intellectual currents of his time, and then draw a few implications as best I can for how his argument might bear on American constitutional developments, especially as those pertain to the rights-based branch of the modern libertarian legal movement that we've charted here at the Cato Institute over the past quarter of a century. Let's begin, however, with a note that Alberto signed, sounded, namely that Leone placed himself firmly in the research program that Carl Menger had started, which sought solutions to the most important problems of the theoretical sciences in general, and theoretical economics in particular, by better understanding the origin and change of organically created social structures. Leone uh, sought that understanding in law, seen as Albert Alberto put it as an example of an organically grown institution, rather than as an artifact, and he sought in particular to draw a connection between law and markets. A classical liberal, writing in the post-war period, Leone saw all about him in Europe and even in America, the rise of the modern welfare state grounded not in organically grown law, but in legislation all of which was increasingly restricting individual freedom through legislatively crafted social planning. Yet it was mainly economists, he noted, not lawyers or political scientists, who were standing athwart this development, notwithstanding that freedom was not only an economic or a political, but probably above all, he said, a legal concept. But over the years, freedom had been given often incompatible definitions, he noted, So the first task he set for himself, drawing on the analytical philosophy that dominated the field at the time, was to craft a more precise definition of freedom, which he did by drawing the analytical connection between freedom and constraint, and more exactly, the absence of constraint, yet allowing constraint to secure freedom, but not erroneously simply to enhance the well-being of others in a way that could not be universalized. Obviously I'm summarizing here, glossing over a far more complex analysis. Um, Let me add simply that Leone was wrestling with issues that were in the air at the time. Recall Sir Isaiah Berlin's efforts in his famous two concepts of liberty and his distinction between negative and positive liberty an effort, uh, an early effort to distinguish what Maurice Cranston would later recast in the language of rights, distinguishing real and supposed rights. There were problems with Berlin's analysis, which his critics were only too anxious to point out, but Leone came closer to the mark when he wrote almost in passing that freedom has little meaning when it is contemplated only by the expression from something and does not include what it is that one is free to do. It remained for an American uh, analytical philosopher, Gerald McCallum, to argue systematically some years later that freedom is always and everywhere a three-place predicate, the abstruse details of which I needn't go into here. But I go into this much at least. Because it suggests that Leone was moving in the right direction, and because if I'm not reading too much into what he wrote, he seems to have understood what others of us later came to grasp more fully, namely, that freedom alone, because it is subject to the nominal expansive definition, may not be rich enough idea to do the work that he and others wanted it to do. Thus, in his essay a few years later, namely, The Law as Individual Claim, he can be seen as having made a second important contribution by shifting the focus from freedom to rights. One can have freedom from any number of constraints, human or not, but to have a right is to have a claim against another person, Leone said. Thus, rights denote relationships between claimants and correlative obligation holders. They are, as analytical philosophers would say, richer five-place predicates, and they give us a stronger analytical tool for discussing the moral, political, legal, and economic issues before us. To return to Leone's earlier argument, however, he wrote that today freedom and constraint pivot more and more on legislation even in the common law countries. Indeed, the idea that law might not be identical with legislation seems odd to both students of law and to layman," he added. Yet far from being required by modern technology, much less providing the certainty it promises, ever-changing legislation, especially when coupled with the administrative regulations that inevitably follow, had created conditions that have constrained freedom, frustrated creativity, and made private planning increasingly difficult. If this sounds familiar, think Obamacare or Sarbanes-Oxley. Remember that Leone was writing in 1958 when the modern administrative state was a shadow of its present form. We come then to the remedy Leone proposed those who value the individual freedom that modern legislation has increasingly restricted are advised by Leone to look to the Roman and English approaches to law. Both shared the idea that law was something to be discovered more than to be enacted," he wrote. And that discovery was entrusted to jurisconsults and judges, respectively, not to legislators. Legislation such as it was under Roman law and English common law, was intended chiefly as a compilation of past rulings, a far cry from today's legislation expressing the will of a parliamentary majority regarding some public policy or program producing winners and losers in the process. The presumption, Leone concluded, must always be against legislation, which should be rejected whenever, among other things, It is used merely as a means to subject minorities to majorities and whenever the individuals at issue can realize their objectives without depending on the decision of the group and without constraining any other people to do what they would never do without constraint. And the very old principle at play here, Leone wrote, is biblical and confusion. Do not do unto others what you would not wish others to do unto you. Experience shows, he added, that in contrast with the positive formulation of the Golden Rule, there are no minorities in any group relating to a whole series of things that should not be done. Even people who are possibly ready to do these things to others, he said, admit that they do not want others to do these same things to them. The vision that follows for Leone is well known among libertarians, Drawing on von Mises' critique of central economic planning and offering his own critique of political representation, Leone generalizes. No legislator, he writes, and I quote, would be able to establish by himself without some kind of continuous collaboration on the part of all the people concerned, the rules governing the actual behavior of everybody in the endless relationships that each has with everyone else. The actual behavior of people is continuously adapting itself to changing conditions, note the Austrian implications here. In the process, he calls for drastic reduction in the number of matters about which people ought to be represented.
0: When Kevin and Rich Gates found themselves under investigation for so-called market manipulations for trades in the electricity market, they could have settled and not risked further angering federal regulators. But they decided to fight. Moreover, they chose to make their fight with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission very public, with a website detailing their case, FERClitigation.com. Kevin Gates spoke at the Cato Institute in May.
5: I started, as Tim had mentioned, I started a money management business about 18 years ago with my identical twin brother, Rich Gates, and a third partner. We were all uh, disgruntled employees at Capital One doing database analysis and had a very strong entrepreneurial bug and um, borrowed money from credit cards to uh, to effectively trade in the stock market. Um, What was a hobby then ultimately became a profession. Um, where we have uh, over a billion dollars of assets. We run three mutual funds and two hedge funds. The hedge funds uh, were launched in 2001 and have over uh, about a 10% return a year, uh, half the volatility of the market with only one negative year. Our mutual funds uh, are gold-rated by Morningstar. Uh, Last year, Morningstar uh, Described TFS as the alternative fund manager of the year. So we've gotten received rave reviews. Um, part of the obligations of being a portfolio manager and owner of TFS, it's a self-induced obligation, is that we have to keep the majority of our liquid net worth in the funds that we manage for our clients. We think that that's important to align interests with our investors. With the other ha- with the other portion of our money, we can do other things. We can uh, do, uh, invest in real estate. We can hire third party traders. We can put it in cash. Um, uh, and what we had, I guess, beginning in 2007 started evaluating the power markets. And, uh, I guess it started in, uh, we were contacted in 2007 by a quantitative analyst at Dominion, which is a utility down in Richmond, Virginia. He was looking to par- partner with an independent money management firm, And he contacted us and said, I want to work with you. You're you're a quant firm. I'm a quant firm. You guys trade stocks and commodities. I trade power. And we said, what's power? What are you talking about? And he effectively introduced us to these markets. Uh, Ultimately, he didn't uh, take a job with us, but we did uh, become curious, and we started cold calling independent traders around the country who were uh, largely sitting at home trading personal assets in the power markets. Uh, these traders that we had engaged uh, ran the full spectrum of, of uh, backgrounds and pedigrees. We had one, tra- a couple traders were, you know, the standard PhD, 10 years of experience at banks and hedge funds, and wanted to go off on their own. We had some that, uh, we had one individual who uh, I'm not even sure if he had a college degree, but had worked his way up. Um, starting working at a generator and went into semi-retirement and knew the electrical grid better than anybody. Um, these traders were trading personal assets, and we'd approach them and say, we'll put up money as well, trade our account, para-pursue, as to the trading of your account. You put on me- one megawatt in your account, put on four megawatts in our account. We'll pay you a percentage of the, of the profits. And um, if there are losses, we assume all of them. 2008, we engaged a trader named Alan Chen. Alan got his PhD in China when he was 25 years old and moved to the United States afterwards to seek a better life. Alan spent about a decade um, learning the power markets. He worked at Enron, he worked at some of the banks and some of the utilities, and then in 2007 started trading his personal monies. He's uh, down in Houston, Texas. We interviewed Alan, we asked him some standard due diligence questions, became interested in what he was doing and set up an account with Alan. Uh, 2008, uh, 2009, he was, he was doing okay. He was making a little bit of money. There was some volatility, but it was a good diversifier. If, uh, it, you know, the power markets are not correlated with uh, the stock markets and other traditional investments. So we thought it was a good complement to our portfolio. Then in 2009, PJM, which is uh, controls the electrical grid where Alan was trading, came to us and said, you know what? Apparently, we've messed up. Apparently, we've, uh, FERC has told us that we owe you rebates for some of your past trading, and you'll also get them prospectively going forward. And they wrote us basically over the course of three or four months, gave us $900,000 for rebates, for retroactive payments that were owed to us, but they had not been paid to us. And certainly that catches one's attention. Um, The backstory to that was that there were some other traders unrelated and independent to us that were battling it out with uh, the the FERC as it relates to uh, the allocation of line losses on the electrical grid. Without getting into the too much in the details, originally FERC said the, the traders, the virtual traders said, I would like to participate in these line losses and collect these rebates. FERC said, No, we don't want, we we're not going to uh, pay them to you because if we pay them, you will do trades simply to collect these line losses. And then the traders, these independent, unrelated traders, appealed that decision. And FERC said, indeed. We will pay these, and we realize that traders will do trades that would not be profitable but for these rebates. We weren't aware of this uh, until they, they actually paid us these rebates retroactively. We got excited, as you can imagine. We liked the investment to begin with. That's why we had money with Allen. We liked it even more now, because we were getting these rebates, um, so we, Increased our investment, we put more money with Alan, and we asked him to increase his leverage uh, on his trading. That was in the summer of 2010. And um, it started off uh, with this increased leverage. Uh, he started off losing over $400,000. We put in about 2 million, a little over $2 million. In the first couple of days, he lost uh, 400 dollars uh, $450,000. And Then, but subsequent for the next nine weeks, made us about $5 million. So, over the summer of 2010, he had turned $2 million into $7 million doing trades that he may otherwise not have done but for these rebates. Um, We were, as you can imagine, pretty excited about this situation uh, until the, uh, I guess, the independent market monitor for PJM. Uh, contacted him and asked him to stop uh, what happened since then has just been uh, a complete nightmare and very unpredictable uh, very surprising um, started off with uh, I've been deposed a couple of times my uh, my two partners that we I started the business with who are also investors in this fund have been deposed and two of my other colleagues have been deposed um, we have spent Uh, We had spent about a million and a half dollars on position papers, expert affidavits, and just attorneys' fees communicating with the FERC. And you know, we have many arguments um, to defend ourselves. But the strongest argument that you could tell, you know, explain to a jury jury is, "Come on, guys, of course this is lawful. You predicted this. We are doing exactly what you had expected when you uh, introduced these rebates into the into the marketplace."
0: Views of intellectual property vary among liberty-minded scholars, but there are reasons to believe that copyright has, at least in recent years, conferred an undue intellectual privilege on copyright holders. Tom Bell is the author of the new book, Intellectual Privilege, Copyright, Common Law, and the Common Good. He spoke at the Cato Institute in May.
6: Now I present this as a libertarian view of copyright, I will not pretend it is the libertarian view of copyright. I don't think there is a single libertarian view of copyright and I think that's a good thing. It shows the people who are not libertarians that smart people who like liberty can disagree amongst themselves and it gives us something to talk about. You'll see I've laid it out so that my friends on the right, they're friends of property, as am I. I really like property rights. I think Chris would agree with me that in academia, that can sometimes leave you in a lonely place. Uh, Nonetheless, I'm going to stick to my guns on that. I think property rights are wonderful social institutions. We need more of them. And my friends on the right agree with me about that. Where I disagree with some of my friends on the right is in regarding copyright as a legitimate form of property. It has property-like aspects. Indeed, I think its best aspects are its property-like aspects. But as the title of the book, indicates, I think it's better understood not as a form of property, but as a form of government-granted privilege, rather like say taxi medallions or welfare benefits. Now this does not mean it's per se bad. Okay, it simply means that when we assess copyright we should look at it through the same lenses that we apply to questions like should we have taxi medallions, should we have farm subsidies? You know, should we or should we not? It's a cost-benefit analysis we engage in. So my friends on the right agree with me about property rights. They tend to glom together copyright with other types of property. I think they've been bamboozled by a rhetorical trick. And as a consequence, they do not have a lot of respect for freedom from copyright. And that's where I agree with people on the left. My friends on the left say, we have some problems with copyright. It does restrict freedom of speech. Copyright tells you you cannot go out on a public corner and recite MLK's I Have a Dream speech. And you can't, by the way, because it's under copyright. In fact, the copyright is owned by the British conglomerate, EMI, and you can buy a DVD of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech for $20, and you can watch it in the privacy of your own home. But even that would not give you a license to go down to the Lincoln Memorial and repeat his words. And that's a real restriction on freedom of speech. Because you're left to paraphrase his thoughts. Now, that does not convey Martin Luther King's ideas really very well. If you say, well, Martin Luther King talked about having this reverie about the future, that is not the same. And furthermore, I think it's worth noting that it's one thing for friends of copyright to say we should protect artists and authors and they do creative things, and I'm totally on board with that. I have a lot of respect for the arts. In fact, I have arts training myself. But most people do not have at their fingertips the ability to come up with original expressions, Okay, They just don't. And to all those people you say, we're kind of going to limit you. You who have to borrow other people's words to make your points can't do that. That's copyright protected. And so my friends on the left recognize that. Now where do I disagree with them? They don't have enough respect if you ask me for property rights. They say, oh yeah, copyrights, that's a form of property and you know, whatever. They're just tools of the state and we tinker with them as we see fit for the public good. Uh, No, I don't want you messing with my real property and my tangible property rights in that way. So there you have it in a nutshell. the libertarian, a libertarian view, I think Chris can probably, you know, he'll probably give you a different but also pretty libertarian view, but a libertarian view is that we should have both property rights, yay property rights, intangibles, the kinds of property rights that are recognized in a state of nature and at the common law, and we should also recognize that we need to have freedom from copyright. Both are good things, and we can't achieve both. Now, as Jim noted, I'm a big fan of the common law. The common law is in the subtitle of the book. The subtitle is Copyright Common Law and the Common Good. Why am I such a big fan of the common law? Well, it's kind of difficult to do that very quickly. I like the common law because it comes from the bottom up. The common law originally was found by judges in the practices of people in the streets and in the markets and in the fields. It's a bottom up process. And originally, court decisions recognized the common law by bringing in witnesses and asking them, how in your community do you resolve these kinds of disputes? And of course, they added to that and elaborated on that. And subsequent to that, commentators, such as, uh, as, as Cook and Bracton kind of summarized the common law and did a great service for us all. It's very difficult to sum up the common law. And that's a beautiful thing. It's organic. It's complicated. It's a rich web. And this is, in sharp contrast, copyright. Copyright does not exist in a state of nature. It does not exist at the common law. It comes from the top down from Washington, D.C. to us. It is a directed planned order. Now I'm not going to say that's necessarily bad. I'm not anti-copyright, but let's recognize the beast for what it is. Copyright is a planned order from the top down. It's purely statutory, and that creates public choice problems.
0: The technocratic approach to ending global poverty favored by development experts often strengthens authoritarian governments and neglects or undermines the preferences and personal choices of the poor. William Easterly, in his new book, The Tyranny of Experts, explains that this technocratic approach is, not surprisingly, counterproductive. He spoke at the Cato Institute in May.
7: Let me start the talk tonight with a story about two men who arrived in Stockholm, Sweden, four decades ago. So Gunnar Myrdal and Friedrich Hayek got the Nobel Prize and arrived in Stockholm in December 1974 to receive it. The tragedy of development economics is that these two had directly opposite views on how development happened. And yet the debate between them never happened. Gunnar Myrdal had a frankly and openly stated authoritarian view of how development happens. And of course, Hayek had a view of development happening as a result of free people and free institutions. So let me set out for you this afternoon this debate. And let me explain how, without a debate, Murdal's views carried the day in, in development thinking, still today, and created three biases that I'm going to talk to you about against freedom. The first bias that Murdal introduced against freedom and that Hayek violently disagreed with was a double standard, the double standard bias, a double standard in which we in the West, and we especially in development, might have cared about our own rights as rich people, but did not care about the rights or freedoms of poor people. Now, was very explicit about this in his writings, and the the dueling writings that never debated each other, never engaged each other happened in the 40s and 50s, many, many decades ago, and yet these views are still very, very much today in contention, and yet still not debated. Sir Murdoch said the development effort had to be staged by the governments of underdeveloped countries that had what he called a largely illiterate and apathetic citizenry. He argued that even what he called the autocratic element in Soviet communism, even that, such totalitarian tyranny, satisfied this is another quote directly from Myrdal, satisfies a predisposition of the masses in these countries who for centuries have been conditioned to respond positively to direction from authority. And Myrdal thought that development efforts would be largely ineffective unless they were what he called, quote, regulations backed by compulsion. That is, supporting them by force. And then Myrdal stated explicitly the double standard. Here's an exact quote from from Myrdal. He said, none of the experts, um, which were the American and the European experts, sees any other way out of the mounting difficulties in underdeveloped countries, however different their attitude may be towards economic problems at home. So coercion for poor people. And Myrdal was, uh, was willing to allow freedom for rich people. This double standard unfortunately still exists today in development, that we fundamentally don't care or don't care enough about the freedom and rights of poor people. Let me tell you a story from today. On the morning of Sunday, February 28, 2010, the villagers of Mubende, Uganda, were awakened by the sound of gunfire. They ran out of their houses and found men with guns waiting outside who immediately started to burn down their houses, and to torch their crops, and to shoot their livestock. They kept the farmers at gunpoint from rescuing their own homes. They marched the farmers away at gunpoint, told them the land was no longer theirs, 20,000 farmers deprived of their rights to land, deprived of their human rights not to be coerced and abused. It was sadly, an eight-year-old child died in the fire because they were prevented from rescuing their own homes. And this was taking place as a World Bank forestry project, which had some experts had decided this land would better be used for forestry than for food crops. And when implemented inside of an authoritarian system by an authoritarian aid agency, the result was this. This is the tyranny of experts at its most extreme. And what's most revealing to me about the development community is what happened afterwards. Unlike many other rights abuses and violations of the freedoms of poor people that happen around the world, this one made it onto the front page of the New York Times. And the World Bank promised the next day that they would investigate what happened. Four years later, that investigation has never happened, and what's more than that is No one else has really paid much attention to any of these events. And no one has protested either the original events or the non-investigation by the World Bank. This whole story says volumes to me about how little the development community really cares about the rights of poor people, that even such an egregious rights violation did not lead to any protest. Now, Hayek was very clear on freedom as both the source of development empirically By the way, another strange thing that this double standard did is that it removed as possible models for what was then called third world development, the the examples of those countries that had actually succeeded at development, the first world. Because the paternalistic assumption was that the first world methods would not work in the third world. First world peoples might have gotten developed because of their own free institutions. But Myrdal's double standard meant that those would not apply So even the, in the third world. So even the debate about evidence was sort of rigged from the beginning in this way, that here we have a body of evidence about freedom and development. And we're going to, in considering how to succeed at development, we're going to exclude all the examples of those who have succeeded at development, which happen to be the more free countries. And so that even biased the empirical debate about the effect of freedom on development from the very beginning, that the success stories of freedom in the first world were left out. So Hayek condemned all of this right from the beginning. In fact, he condemned it before it even happened in the road to serfdom. He was very clear that that the change from a rigidly organized hierarchical system, in Hayek's word, Hayek's words into into one in which people could shape their own life, was the root of prosperity in the West. He condemned all the societies everywhere in the world that he had observed in which the individual is merely a means to serve the ends of the higher entity called the society or the nation. From this followed what Hayek called the disregard of the life and happiness of the individual along with the intolerance and brutal suppression of dissent And Hayek explicitly opposed the paternalistic double standard. He understood how it led to the denial of liberty to the objects of this paternalism. He said, this is the final quote from Hayek in this first phase of the debate, the more a person dislikes the strange, the other, the them, the, the Africans, the Asians, and thinks his own way is superior, the more he tends it, to regard it as his mission to civilize others. Hayek wrote that in, in The Road to Serfdom in 1944. A few years later, the word civilized would be changed to develop. The second part of the, of the debate that never happened was a never, another bias introduced by Myrdal that we can call the benevolent autocrat bias, the bias to believe in benevolent autocrats. So Myrdal envisaged a government and its entourage as the active subject in planning and the rest of the people as the relatively passive objects emerging from planning. Now in this world, anything good that ever happens in a country, who gets the credit? The authoritarian ruler gets all the credit for anything good that ever happens in this world, in this worldview that was introduced by Myrdal. And this worldview is still very much in the mindset today. So there have been a few years of good growth in Ethiopia, which in the volatile world of, of, develop, of low-income economies doesn't really mean all that much. There's lots of booms and busts in developing economies. You cannot take all that seriously a few years of good growth. USAID actually admitted that a lot of the recent growth was just recovery from a drought. But that did, that did not stop everyone from giving credit to the Ethiopian ruler at the time, Meles Zenawi, for the growth. Bill Gates said that, quote, Meles Inawi has made real progress in helping the people of Ethiopia. USAID celebrated how Meles Zenawi had made tremendous progress, transforming its economy and society. Uh, World Bank President Dr. Jim Kim celebrated Ethiopia's transformational change which he attributed to a, quote, stable government. Stable is kind of uh, one of those euphemistic words that means dictator. Uh, that takes a long-term perspective, uh, on a, the long-term perspective being, I want to stay in power as long as possible. Uh, the other thing strange about declaring Melis to be a benevolent autocrat on the basis of a few years of uh, of growth and a boom and bust economy is we're also directly omitting any evidence of his malevolence, of him not being so benevolent, which included shooting demonstrators down in the streets after rigged elections in 2005. He was caught by Human Human Rights Watch manipulating famine relief to go only to ruling party supporters in 2010. He introduced another forced resettlement scheme uh, in Ethiopia called villagization. So like the Uganda example, farmers, were take, their lands were taken away from them by soldiers. They were marched away to government model villages. They were anything but model. They lacked basic services like water. The, the farmers' land rights and human rights were violently disregarded. And anyone who protested this, he put in jail. Specifically, he jailed a peaceful blogger named Eskinder Nega in 2012, sentenced him to 20 to 18 years in jail. In fact, uh, to, to bring the story totally up to date, uh, Melis has since died of natural causes and has been succeeded by another dictator named Haile Mariam. Uh, John Secretary of State John Kerry just arrived in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And to show how seriously the Ethiopian government took any concern for human rights that might be emanating from the US government, uh, the Ethiopian government celebrated his arrival by jailing six bloggers and three journalists and sent sending them to join Eskander-Nega in prison. Uh, That's how little they cared about any U.S. human rights concerns, which were basically non-existent to begin with. So Hayek, again, was very prescient on all of this. He warned the experts in the road to serfdom, don't trust the benevolent autocrats to do good things. He objected to anyone who, who does not object to coercion or arbitrary power. This is Hayek's Protests. He, he is criticizing those who do not object to coercion or arbitrary power so long as it is used for what this person, this expert, regards as the right purposes. And so the main hope must be that the wise and the good will rule, in Hayek's words. And so, which Hayek quickly refuted in another chapter in The Road to Serfdom called Why the Worst to Get on Top, about why autocrats are not benevolent. Because in this, in an autocratic system, there will be special opportunities for the ruthless and the unscrupulous. In such a system, the readiness to do bad things becomes a path to promotion and power. So this, this bias to believe in benevolent autocrats, which leads us to give credit for any good things that ever happen anywhere to any autocrat that happens on the scene, is the second bias that biases against biases the development community against freedom as a path to development, and in favor of an authoritarian, technocratic approach driven by a tyranny of experts who supply technical solutions to benevolent autocrats to implement them. The third bias is probably the the hardest one to get over. This is the one that is probably going to be impossible to ever convince the development community to give up this, this bias is the bias in favor of conscious direction instead of spontaneous solutions. Of course, conscious, the idea of conscious direction creates a big demand for experts. And Hayek, in fact, noted that uh, he had been promised himself as an economist that he would have had a much more important role in any sort of consciously-directed society as an economist, but he declined that role. I wanna follow in that tradition that I decline I used to be an, one of those experts that benefited from the belief in conscious direction but I've repented I've recovered I'm no longer an expert I'm a recovering expert But of course that doesn't apply to the large community of development experts who they believe are that they are in charge of consciously directing development and making development happen through conscious direction So Murdall again it's, again, the, the tragedy of the Myrdal-Hayek debate that didn't happen. Murdahl had said this very clearly. What these countries need is a program that will induce changes simultaneously in a great number of conditions that hold down their growth. That the experts can design a whole social engineering package that will develop countries. Uh, still today, these beliefs seem to be very, very prevalent. After World Bank President Dr. Jim Kim was elected, his first speech as World Bank President announced his own position on conscious direction. In the annual meetings in Tokyo on October 11, 2012, Dr. Kim called for the World Bank to become the Solutions Bank. The bank should offer what he called evidence-based, non-ideological solutions to development challenges. Non-ideological is a code word for you're not allowed to debate freedom versus autocracy. That debate is censored. (laughs) Uh, The bank should reach agreement with other development agencies, with foundations, with academics, to advance shared goals for these solutions. Uh, Dr. Kim called for a new science of delivery. This is so technocratic, it's an embarrassment to the other technocrats. Uh, to implement the evidence-based solutions. And this new science would include the design, execution, and demonstration of results. Now, again, Hayek was prescient on this. Hayek never actually used the word technocracy, but it's pretty clear that that's the set of ideas that he had in mind. Technocracy was a word that was invented in the early 20th century that literally means rule of experts. So the prevailing technocratic approach to development. The word technocrat literally means tyranny of experts. The experts are in charge. So to Hayek, this set of ideas that that I would call technocracy represented the uncritical transfer to the problems of society of the habits of thought of the natural scientist and the engineer. As it happens, Dr. Jim Kim is a medical doctor. He's trained as a natural scientist. That's why he's so trained to think in terms of conscious direction, of direct solutions to problems. And Hayek noted that the technocrats, what he called impatience for quick results, had led them to reject the spontaneous forces found in a free society. And the seduction of conscious direction, Hayek said, is so great because the person who actually does things is always going to be far more popular than the economist who is what Hayek called the, the odious individual who sits back in his armchair and explains why the well-meaning efforts of the experts are frustrated. Sounds like he had already read in advance some of my book reviews. Hayek offered an alternative that we call political and economic freedom, liberty, individual rights, whatever you want to call it, you know what we're talking about, that relies on individuals' freedom to choose and not on experts. And this is one of my favorite Hayek quotes of all, uh, that's so anti-expert and so much in favor of freedom. It is because every individual knows so little and because we rarely know which of us knows best. We don't even know who are the experts. It's because of that that we trust the independent and competitive efforts of many to induce, uh, and this final phrase is, is one of my favorites, to induce the emergence of what we shall want when we see it. That we don't even know who the experts are, we don't know who is going to solve our problems, But we know in a free society, there'll be the competitive efforts of many that will induce the emergence of what we shall want when we see it.
0: The Cato summer book sale is in full swing. Now through July 27th, all books and ebooks are 25% off when you enter the code SUMMER14 at checkout. In addition, as part of the Cato Summer Reading Program, each week we'll be pricing one ebook at $1.99. Visit cato.org/store today. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.